Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, happy almost Thanksgiving. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. This is the Midwest LaRouche organization meeting, of course. And we've got a very special event tonight, um, which I think will be different than most, but, um, but we have a, a very special guest and um, kind of a unique discussion. But uh, I'm going to say a few things first, just about the situation we're in, um, which to start it off with the, um, uh, hold on a sec. We just had the end of the COP26 summit in, in Scotland, which people may or may not have heard about it. It was certainly the biggest failure that the the global british imperial crowd has had in a while which was wonderful um, this included numerous nations not attending um, this included the key nations around the world refusing to go along with pledges to commit um, basically economic suicide and reduce their their energy consumption. Um, and certainly we're in a different world. Increasingly, we're in a different world that is not the one that, that you know, you thought you were living in. Um, it's certainly not the one that we were living in a year ago or even six months ago. We're, we're in a situation where there, there is a real uh, earthquake of, of ideas and, and, a, and a transformation. Um, and it's one that we urgently have to intervene into from the highest level um, and understand what we're dealing with and what is required of us in order to be effective. Um, and I'll just say actually, because I think it's, it's uh, you know, useful in this context, especially for those of you here in Michigan, that the World Economic Forum who runs the, of course, the Davos uh, Forum every year, they just announced, actually they announced a few months ago, but they announced recently that they're making Detroit their new headquarters for the Urban Transformation Center. So even though their, their system is failing, it doesn't mean they can't create destruction along the way. So just, just to you know, be aware of that, we got a lot of work to do. Um, so, uh, but earlier today, I was just thinking about this situation and this meeting tonight, and um, I'm more convinced than ever that you can't save the world without the ideas of, of LaRouche, of Lyndon LaRouche and of this movement. Um, and, and I think that's just an important thing to point out because there, there's a lot of openings and opportunities. There's a lot of things being exposed, um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a very specific quality which has to be intervened into um, if we're going to be successful. And what I what I mean by that is if if we zoom out, if we take the last fifty years, the post JFK paradigm and you look at 
what's unfolded since then with the wars, with the uh, counterculture, with the um, demoralization generally of the American people and the, and the loss of that inspiration for the world. What the enemy was figuring they were going to be able to do was to destroy the culture of Americans so that they could never figure out which way is up. They could, so they can never have their feet on the ground enough to be able to work their way out of, you know, however crazy of a situation, however corrupt of a situation it is. It, it was not, in other words, it wasn't a question of just lying to people and therefore all you need to do is get more facts and get more truth which is one way that a lot of people think we're going to solve our problems. We're going to expose the truth. Um, but you got a problem if your culture is so, you know, is so morally decayed, then how do you actually find the premise upon which to, to rebuild and, and regenerate your society? Where does that come from? What do you draw upon in order to do that? So, um, so that's what I think I want to raise tonight, um, and I'm going to say a few more things, but I will mention briefly that Helga Zeppelrush, over a year ago, about a year and a half ago now, launched what she called the Committee on the Coincidence of Opposites, with the idea being, how do you evoke an idea that is universal? How do you evoke something in in, in anybody and everybody that is universal and that actually is a potent enough thought process to be able to span uh, differences, divides, you know, in every walk of life from political to ethnic to national nationality. How do you actually bridge that gap in a universal method? Um, so I'll just say that to, to kind of give people an idea. Now what um, our speaker, Mike Billington and I, who, um, what, what two of us had the chance to work together on a project earlier this summer, where we spoke with a guy who, who leads something called the Heartbeat Opera Company out of New York. And um, they basically had put on an opera of Beethoven's Adelia. They put on a, a version of Beethoven's Fidelio opera, which is a beautiful story about how there's a, a, a political prisoner, essentially, who's locked up for, for fighting for the truth. And um, his wife comes to save him, dressed up as a man and comes to save him. In the middle of the opera, one of the most uh, touching scenes is where there's the, the wife convinces the prison guard to, to release the prisoners. Now she's looking for oh, her Lord. husband. Um, but in the, in the quest of it, she, she convinces him or uh, yeah, convinces him to, to release the prisoners for a breath of fresh air. And they sing this beautiful uh, choral piece, um, which is known as the Prisoner's Chorus. So this heartbeat opera did 
a version of Fidelio where they decided at one point to use actual prisoners for the prisoners chorus, um, which was totally revolutionary. And so um, it, was, it was very interesting. So these guys went to about a half dozen prisons. They got over a hundred inmates and taught them, worked with them um, to teach them this, this, uh, this chorus, uh, which is in German, by the way. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not a walk in the park, but they, they learned it and they performed it and they, they basically played a video on stage for people. Um, and so what we spoke with this gentleman about um, was the, the effect of it. Um, and what I'm gonna read just briefly, and this is kind of a foretaste of an article that Mike and I will be releasing in the upcoming magazine, Leonora, which people should subscribe to if they haven't yet. Um, I'm gonna read a couple of short pieces from letters that the directors of this opera company got from some of the prisoners involved. Just to give you a sense of what transformation in this case occurred. So one of them, guy says, or somebody says, Fidelio to me is a story of a man buried in the prison system. The only one worried about him is his wife. As someone who has been buried and forgotten in this, in this system, it offers light to one of the positive programs in the penal system and brings us to consciousness for people who might never think of us otherwise. Actually, that's not the one I wanted to read. Let me read this section. This project has affected me more and more as time has passed. From the process of learning the music week to week and growing in confidence, misplaced or not, to recording the song live in our chapel, gradually the gravity of what I was doing settled in. Having been in prison for over 20 years, I have not had a place in the free world. And this has been an opportunity for me to share something truly positive with my friends and family. Thank you for allowing them to see me in another light. I've been part of the East Hill Singers for almost five years now. And while not that great of a singer, I've been fortunate enough to bond with a great group of people and I almost feel free. I'll read a little part of another one. Singing this music in context really hits home. I'm 39 and have been incarcerated since I was 18. Having to be quiet when you want to express yourself for fear of repercussions is a feeling that may be universally recognized but not understood. Imagine what being free in your heart and mind, yet unfree in your body, feels like. Restricted in the expression of your joy, your pain, your apathy, or your rage. Almost scared of the sunshine, relegated to a hush for a moment of joy. Fidelio, to me, seems to be a great love story. Can you imagine, is love like that? Willing to go undercover as a man? to find the truth and free her love a truly amazing concept in today's world a love that faces fear with courage and is willing to defy all the odds simply because the heart will not allow anything else i guess it had to take place on stage 
so people will have to get the magazine to um to get the rest but hopefully you can get some some glimpse and and i think when i turn it over to mike here you'll get the sense we're not talking about happy-go-lucky love and beauty you know you know frou-frou kind of stuff here we're talking about um how this actually how this war can actually be won which i think is is the important thing we want to to uh to consider especially this holiday moment so um so i'm going to turn it over to to mike who um if people don't know did serve time in prison uh was was railroaded at the same time as mr larouche back in 1989 um served with a number of our other leading associates and um made the best of it <laughs> so without further ado i'll turn it over to you mike why don't you Thanks, take Stuart. it away? My 10-year sabbatical leave, I like to call it. Um, yeah, so the, uh, the fact that, uh, that the head of the Heartbeat uh, Opera had experienced this was not only wonderful for the, uh, for the prisoners who participated in it, but it was also it was also for him. It was obviously a very uplifting experience for him to go into the prisons to uh, get a sense of uh, how classical music, uh, which, as you can imagine, 99% of the people participating in these choruses in six different prisons had never had any experience with classical music, let alone singing it, uh, that that this uh, gave them a very different sense of humanity as a whole, meaning the people who did the opera company. And he expressed that in the interview. When you read the interview, you'll see that he was quite moved by this experience and he's thinking about how to pursue it. Um, and how we got involved in this had a lot to do with the fact that when I was locked up for a couple of years, uh, one of my co-defendants, Paul Gallagher, whom most of you know, was the economics editor for EIR. Um, and I were in the same prison in Staunton, Virginia. And at that time, we formed ourselves uh, a chorus. Um, I had been involved in directing choruses uh, before I went into prison. Uh, I sang a great deal with my sister, Margaret, who is on this broadcast right now, who is a wonderful pianist. And she and I sang Schubert uh, song cycles and, and other things over the many, many years. Um, but I had also had the opportunity to learn a little bit from uh, a Mexican maestro on how to teach uh, the bel canto method, how to teach people to place their voice in a way which makes the natural, beautiful sound of a well-placed voice, an opera-style voice. So um, when Paul came to the Stanton prison and we were together, he convinced me that we should form a course, and indeed we did. And it was, it was quite uh, extraordinary. We had about 20 people. Uh, there were Christians and Jews and Muslims and Mormons and, and other things. It was quite uh, an amalgus group of people, uh, one or two of whom had musical experience. One actually sang quite well and one played the violin. 
and played both uh, rag, uh, what do you call it, uh, bluegrass, but also he could play classical violin. And the prison warden, who was a decent person at that point, actually arranged for the prison to get a violin that he could play on. So we formed this chorus, we sang, we sang. Um, the only thing that these people had in common is that they committed a crime. Uh, really, everybody was very, very uh, distinct in their background, their character, the kinds of crimes, the kind of lives. But one thing which, with these two exceptions, none of them had ever had any experience with classical music or, or with singing, for that matter. So we sang, uh, we sang wonderful pieces. We sang the Gloria Zaidir Gesungen, which is the final chorale in the Bach uh, Cantata 140, Bach et Auf which um, which means uh, glory be to sing, be sung unto you. Uh, that's the beginning of the final course. And the, the Schiller Institute New York City Community Chorus is right now singing not only the Vivaldi Gloria that we mentioned a moment ago, but also the Wachadalf Cantata by Bach. And I encourage all of you who have not already to join the New York City Community Chorus. You can be in contact with any one of us to see how you can get on and, and rehearse every week uh, and participate in learning from home on, on the computer. And we're going to have a concert on the 17th or the 19th, I believe, uh, of December, which will be both virtual and live, uh, in which I'll go up to New York and participate in. Uh, so we, we sang that with our, with our course. We had to rearrange the parts instead of soprano, alto, tenor, bass, it had to be for tenor one, tenor two, bass one, and bass two, because there were no women in prison, I assure you. Um, but we did quite well, uh, and we sang the Mozart uh, uh, brief but absolutely beautiful choral piece called Ave Verum Corpus, the uh, true body of Christ. Um, which is one of the last pieces Mozart composed in his life and perhaps one of the most profound and beautiful pieces of music ever composed. Um, it, uh, it is about uh, the body of Christ on the cross and it, it ends by, um, by saying, esto nobis pregustatum in mortis examine. Let this be a foretaste for us in the test of death in mortis examine, a very profound, but also an incredibly beautifully composed small piece of, of beauty. Um, and then as was mentioned, we sang the prisoner's chorus from Beethoven's Fidelio. And this was unquestionably that and the Mozart Ave Verum chorus were the pieces that most moved these, these young men, mostly young, there were a couple of older people too. But uh, uh, to sing the prisoner's chorus and to uh, participate in Beethoven's uh, incredible genius uh, was something that was really quite profound. We had the opportunity to perform a concert, a Christmas concert actually in December of 1998, I believe it was. And although it was illegal to record uh, anything in prison, uh, the chapel where we sang did have a little tiny cassette tape recorder. So I, I did manage to clandestinely record this concert. It's an absolutely horrible audio version, uh, but we do have it. And uh, our friend Fred Haight, some of you know Fred Haight, uh, put, uh, put this together with a, a videos, with pictures of classical art, of 
of religious portraits, but also of prisons and so forth. It's really a very beautifully composed piece. So despite the uh, horrible quality of the sound, I think the intensity and the, and the uh, excitement, really, the emotional excitement comes through. And those of you who haven't heard it, I encourage you to get, uh, get a link to it so you can listen to it. Uh, but no, no question that the high point of this was the prisoner's chorus. I, I've often told the story about how before we had the concert, one of the one members of the chorus asked that since we were singing the prisoner's chorus, would it be okay if they dressed up like real prisoners? And I, I indeed let them, let them do that. Um, so I, I, just rather than saying more about the music per se, I think like those letters that Stuart read, uh, every one of the members of that chorus came up to me at some point afterwards and, and said that this has changed their life, that they had never known this kind of beauty, let alone that they could participate in something that uh, with others in a joint project that actually generated something truly beautiful. Most of them have no experience with beauty. You think about what most of our young people think of as their music and their culture. It's this ugliness, this pornographic, violence-prone entertainment and ugly noise that's called music. Uh, so to be suddenly uh, experience something beautiful, it does transform your lives. And this was in fact what LaRouche had in mind when he called on, on the organization. Well, from the very beginning, 50 years ago, we always considered having choruses within the organization and, and participating in uh, forging the ability of all of our members to sing and to place their voice properly, but also to, to really achieve the kind of uh, insight that somebody like Bach or Beethoven had in, the, in their composing of these pieces, that experiencing that through performing it gives, you, gives your mind uh, a, a, uh, an opportunity to experience the creative experience of the composer. Uh, and uh, that this was always part of our, our organizational focus. But beginning, what, about mm, 20 years ago, perhaps, uh, or less than that, I guess, we decided that we needed to build community choruses, that we had to draw the population in, in the same way that we drew in these prisoners to experience something that would activate the mind, the, the process the, the way in which the mind works in uh, creating a work of art or participating in the performance of a work of art is the same creative process in making a profound scientific discovery uh, or, or pondering any great concept or great idea in poetry or in drama or in music. Uh, Einstein famously uh, said that when he was stumped on trying to figure out a, a scientific concept, some notion that would uh, lift our understanding of how the universe works, he would pick up his violin and play Bach. And in the performing of that, he would come up with uh, an, a, a breakthrough, an understanding in the scientific notion as well. And this concept of the mind, this idea that LaRouche fought for uh, throughout his life, that what distinguishes man from the beast uh, is, uh, is, is not our opposable thumbs, as Marx and Engels used to say, but the, the creative quality of the mind, the ability to actually discover principles of the universe which 
transform the future of the human race as a whole. That's, that's the creativity. And it's that same creativity that participates in the, in the, uh, in the performance of beautiful music. So uh, that, that is the incredible experience uh, of this chorus in, in prison. Um, why were we there? Uh, why were Paul Gallagher and myself, like LaRouche and another dozen or so of us, uh, thrown into prison? Well, you know, we're a small, we've always been a relatively small organization, but the ideas are, are very large, very profound ideas. And the fear of the oligarchy from LaRouche, especially when he began to make headway with, uh, with people like uh, President Ronald Reagan, uh, and with other nations, with Indira Gandhi, who became a close friend before she was assassinated, uh, and, and later with, uh, with the Russians after the fall of the Soviet Union, when we discovered that the, the Russian scientists had been studying LaRouche's work for years, uh, seeing in him somebody who understood the Riemannian manifold the equivalence between the Riemannian manifold in, in, uh, in, in physics and the functioning of the economy as a physical process, not as a monetary issue of where does the money go, but of a physical process of transforming nature and transforming the physical universe uh, with higher and higher levels of technological, technological capacity that come from understanding higher and higher levels of the laws of the universe. So um, these, uh, these heavy ideas, these profound ideas, uh, caused them great consternation, which they realized had to be crushed. Uh, and, and in doing so, they launched these campaigns against LaRouche, which ended up putting him and a number of his collaborators in prison, thinking he could destroy the organization by destroying uh, our freedom, our freedom in the sense of not being free to be in society, but to be locked up. It didn't work. Uh, and I think, I think the best way for me to convey uh, that aspect of, of who we are is, is to read uh, a statement from Ramsey Clark. I'm sure most of you know who Ramsey Clark is. He was the attorney general under um, under um, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson from 1966 to 69, I believe. Um, and later on, after seeing our trial, even though we had been very critical of him for some of his political activities, when he saw what happened in our trial, he approached us and said he was willing to represent us in our appeals in the trials. So he represented us during the appeal process. Uh, and at, at later on in 1995, we held a hearing uh, in Vienna, Virginia, on, on the LaRouche case uh, and also on other FBI filthy operations, one of them the so-called Furmenschen case, the uh, uh, case in which a, a situation which the FBI quite openly acknowledged that they were targeting Black elected officials uh, simply on the premise that, that Black people were more prone to corruption and therefore was okay to run scams and to set them up and to try to catch them up uh, committing some sort of a crime. I won't go into that now, 
But we had a hearing on this and Ramsey Clark testified at that. And here's what he said about the LaRouche case. He said, in what was a complex and pervasive utilization of law enforcement, prosecution, media, and non-governmental organizations focused on destroying an enemy, this case must be number one. The very networking and combination of federal, state, and local agencies of executive and even some legislative and judicial branches of major media and minor local media and of influential lobbyist types, the ADL preeminently, this case takes the prize. The purpose can only be seen as destroying more than a political movement, more than a political figure. It is those two, but it's a fertile engine of ideas, a common purpose of thinking and studying and analyzing to solve problems, regardless of the impact on the status quo or on invested interests. It was the deliberate purpose to destroy that at any cost. In the LaRouche case, they are book people. They published, uh, they had publishing houses going on, important publications, nonprofit stuff. That is what they were about, ideas, information, social change meeting the needs of human people all over the world, humanity all over the world. We're going to have a billion more people before the end of this millennium, this century, this decade, and the vast majority, 80%, are going to have beautiful, darker skin. And they're going to live short lives, short lives of sickness, hunger, pain, ignorance, and violence, unless we act radically. And these books have ideas. Some will work, some won't work but their ideas, they can be tested in the marketplace, as we used to say. And the government came in with a false bankruptcy claim against a nonprofit publishing house, and they shut them down. What's the First Amendment worth? We'll silence you, we'll have no books out there. He also earlier that year, Ramsey, uh, wrote a letter to the then Attorney General Janet Reno in which she said that she, he was writing to her, uh, I bring this matter to you directly because I believe it involves a broader range of deliberate and systemic misconduct and abuse of power over a longer period of time in an effort to destroy a political movement and a leader than any other federal prosecution in my time or to my knowledge. The result has been a tragic miscarriage of justice, which at this time, can only be corrected by an objective review and courageous action by the Department of Justice. Now, I would say that this is still very, very true today. The Department of Justice is part of the executive branch and the most important form of correcting this, uh, this vile, evil, criminal act by the, by the government would be for the exoneration of Lyndon LaRouche, still today, despite his having passed, uh, because his ideas were denied to the American population and much of the world population by these vile acts, that they basically were uh, a means of preventing the American people and, and citizens around the world from breaking through the kind of brainwash environment that has systemically taken over uh, the governments, the media, the institutions, uh, and of course, the financial institutions, Wall Street and the City of London, uh, over these, these many years. 
and it's therefore all the more important that we demand that LaRouche be exonerated from this, this activity and that uh, in fact, these ideas be made available rapidly to the millions of people who have not had that opportunity. Now, the first time I met LaRouche, I went to a conference at the end of the year of 1971. I had just come back from four years in the Peace Corps. I was in uh, South America and Guyana for two years, and then I went to Thailand for two years as part of the Peace Corps, in part because I did not want to go into the army. Uh, that was the peak of the Vietnam War, and I would have been drafted had I not done something else for the government, and the Peace Corps was a valuable way to, to, uh, to avoid that evil. I was actually in Asia for two years in Thailand watching the uh, phantom jets taking off from air bases in Thailand to lay waste to villages in Vietnam and Laos, uh, which was a pretty awesome experience, in fact. But when I came back, I uh, was searching around for some movement, and, and I quickly came across uh, LaRouche's uh, writing um, and went to the conference, the year-end conference at the end of 1971 and 72. And what I remember very, very distinctly from that, this is right after August 15, 1971, when Nixon pulled the plug in the dollar, which was the beginning of the end of the Roosevelt policies, which had given rise to the tremendous development uh, during the 1930s and 40s that made it possible for America to lead the effort to defeat the fascists and the Japanese imperialists, uh, and then continued even after Roosevelt's death, by and large, those policies were continued through, through at least uh, into the 50s, 60s to some extent, but, but then were taken down largely uh, and emphatically in 1971 when Nixon uh, decoupled the dollar from, uh, from, uh, from gold and allowed wild speculative binges to take place where you could speculate on currency and you could speculate on anything else. And it was at that time that LaRouche warned that this would lead, if it weren't reversed, it would lead eventually to, uh, to depressions, economic breakdown, eventually to hyperinflationary breakdown. It would lead to the outbreak of small wars and then eventually big wars, nuclear wars, and pandemics. He actually formed a, a biological uh, Holocaust task force, warning that while Nixon was not only taking the dollar off of gold, he was also privatizing health care and implementing a whole slew of uh, effectively fascist economic policies, which uh, would lead eventually to the takedown of our uh, public health system, which we're, we have experienced over these last two years with this pandemic, which I've always insisted that the, the virus didn't cause the pandemic. It was the takedown of our public health system that caused this to be a pandemic rather than just an endemic, which could be easily contained by a country like China that still has a competent public health system. So uh, that was 71. So I went to this conference and what, what Really, the only thing I remember really clearly was that he said, people aren't going to want to hear what I have to say. They're not going to want to hear that the policies that we're accepting from our government are going to lead to hell and that they personally have to take responsibility for the future of humanity as a whole. They're not going to want to hear that. No, I'll take care of myself and my family and maybe my community. But by God, don't ask me to take care of the human race 
they will take care of that anyway, and, and you're just exaggerating and so forth. Uh, so he said, we'll only find ones and twos. He used this term, ones and twos. You'll find one or two people here and there who want to think about what the future of mankind is and what their personal responsibility as a human being really is. Uh, so we all organize for the ones and twos. But um, uh, he said also that when what I'm forecasting comes to pass, when the population is suddenly thrown into a situation where uh, we have destroyed our economy, we're facing hyperinflation, our culture has degenerated, there's legalized drugs, uh, there's pandemics, and that we're on the brink of a thermonuclear war. Does that sound familiar, folks? <laughs> uh, when that happens, uh, then people are going to look back and they're going to say, well, who, who has been lying to me all this time and who was telling the truth? So the point Lynn was making, because that, that, that's the point at which we better be prepared to lead, because people are going to need leadership, which says there is a solution if you act in a human way to use your creative mind to join with us in bringing about a, a solution for mankind as a whole. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, the point that I got from that was you have to tell the truth, even if it doesn't make you popular. Right. You want to be a political movement. Well, you have the first thought as well. We have to go out and get people to support us. So they'll vote for us because then, you know, then we're going to get power. And how do you do that? Well, you find out what the people want and then you you tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> well, it doesn't work. I mean, it might work to get you elected but you're gonna do nothing of, of any usefulness for the world. Uh, the point is you have to tell the truth even when in fact it's not popular. You don't look for gate receipts as Lynn used to put it, uh, meaning you know how many people can you get to check in at the door? He used to make fun about the communist party that would bring people in by saying, we're gonna talk about baseball tonight and then we're gonna wage a revolution, you know? <laughs> so. Uh, you don't look for gate receipts. You don't try to be popular in that sense. You don't try to find what, what the, what, what's the button that's going to get somebody to, to join us. You don't do that. You don't tell them what they want to hear. You actually tell them what they need to know. Uh, and then at that point, when we reach that moment in history, that, that crucial moment where people are suddenly faced with the reality that they have been duped into accepting uh, bad leadership and evil leadership. They've tolerated things like genocidal population wars under the guise of regime change and so forth, or that we're facing a thermonuclear war, or that we're facing a pandemic where we have denied vaccines to 95% of the African people. The same people that we've denied electricity to 50% of Africa has no electricity. Something like that has no access to clean water. And now we're denying them vaccine and you have these crazies in the US, including the dropouts from our organization who, who peddle the idea that, uh, that you know, we should fight against this uh, oppression of being told that we have to have vaccines. And, and you have to ask those people, what do you think about the 95% of the African population, which is already immune depressed because they are facing starvation and, and have diseases from polluted water and no electricity and have to cook with wood in their homes. 
uh, and now they're faced with a with a virus that'll kill them. What 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 do you think about that? Those people who were denied vaccines while you're ranting about your right not to have a vaccine and so forth. I mean, these are the issues that you have to be thinking about humanity as a whole to be a human being. Otherwise, you're simply part of the same kind of British imperial policy, Malthusian policy, the same kind of thing that gave us the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, the climate change lie about carbon, uh, carbon's going to blow up the world or burn up the world. The same lie about vaccines, but they get the other so-called right-wing side of the population to literally support Malthusian genocide under the guise of thinking they're, they're doing something else. So I'm going to read one other thing. This is Martin Luther King, who said, you may be 38 years old, as I happen to be at that time, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause, and you refuse to do it because you're afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid because you will lose your job or you're afraid that you will be criticized and lose your popularity, or you're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house. So you refuse to take that stand. Well, you may go on and live until you're 90, but you will be just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. So this is why Lynn saw Martin Luther King as probably the only truly qualified person to be president of the United States in our lifetime. Uh, and that we have to think in that way, that we have no choice but to actually uh, be, uh, be ourselves that better self that is willing to take on that kind of, of leadership. So this is the Shelley moment. Many of you know that uh, Percy Shelley wrote a thing called Indefensive Poetry in which he pointed out that moments like this in which society tends to fall apart because of all of oligarchical policies, that at those moments, you have to recognize that that is a tremendous moment of opportunity because people throw away their delusions and they're suddenly capable, as he said, of understanding profound ideas about man and nature, about society and science. Uh, and this is, this is one of those moments. Uh, he, he argued that it's the, at that moment that the poet becomes the legislator of history, the musician, uh, the artist, uh, and that um, we must all be poets and artists. Um, and, and the legislators of history. And we have to be leaders of the spirit of man, which is the rare opportunity we have today being at this incredible moment of history. So I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs>